Masechet Gitin Daf Mem Chet. Yesterday we saw Machloket between Rabbi Yochanan and Resh Lakish, and the case of someone who owns a field and someone else buys the rights for the produce for this year or a few years. Um, the one who buys the rights to, to the produce, he's going to have the fruit and he's going to bring the Bikurim. Rabbi Yochanan says, not only does he bring the Bikurim, he can also say, Mikra Bikurim. He can say, yes, thank you for giving me this land. Whereas Shakish says, no, it doesn't, he doesn't own the land. And therefore, yes, he does bring Bikurim, but he cannot say the Mikra Bikurim. Now we are bringing another machloket between Biochanan and Eshakish uh, that is based on the same principle. Vazdula Tamaihu, they are consistent with their reasoning and a different machloket. Itamad Hamochir Sadehu, Bizman Shehovel Noheg, Ribiochanan Amar, Mevi Vekore. If someone sells his land during a time when Yovel is in practice. When Yovel is in practice, that means every 50 years, any land, any ancestral land that's sold reverts back to his owner. Therefore, all sales are in a way temporary. Uh, or in other words, I, if, if it's my ancestral land and I'm selling it to you, I'm really not selling you the land itself. I keep the land. Rather, I'm selling you the produce for a given number of years, right? It's in the middle of Yovel. So then we actually calculate how much is the produce for 25 years. And that's the uh, sale amount. So in effect, it's the same thing, even though we're calling it here, I'm selling you my land, but um, really uh, the land goes back to me. So you can think of it as reverting to me, um, even though you owned it, or you could think of it as I owned it the whole time and you just own the rights to the produce during that period. And therefore, it's a parallel case. And here too, the Biochanan says, Mevi um, vekore. While you while you have the land, um, you can uh, bring bikurim and you can say mikra bikurim because it's the same as if you bought just the produce and not the land. And as Shakish says, you can bring uh, you can bring bikurim, but you cannot say it because it's not your ancestral land. You have the land now; you can use it for now, but you don't really own it because you're going to have to give it back. And now we explain again the same reasoning as we said yesterday. Rabbi Yochanan says the reason why you can say Mikrabi Kodim is because he thinks that acquiring the produce is the same as acquiring the land itself. What does it mean to own land? I mean, you can't even, you, know, you can't hold it in your hand. You can't take it with you. Ownership of land means that you can use it and take whatever it produces. So that is, that's the, kind of, that's the same as owning the land. Um, yeah, it'll go back later, but that's fine. Um, that's so. Therefore, you can say thank you for this land you have given me. The Shakish says no. The acquiring of of the produce is only the produce, and land ownership is a different thing. And you acquire the produce, but not the land. The ancestral land stays under the ownership of its ants of the ancestral owner forever. Uh, even during in the middle of the Yovel. Usricha. Now we say, why do we need to bother to mention the machloket in the case of a sale um, uh, above a, a sale of produce only, and as uh, also in the case of sale during Yovel? Uh, can't you figure out one from the other? Usricha. If I only had the 
machloket uh, above, I would say in that case, Shakish says when the person goes and takes the takes the field, he's taking the field only for the produce because he said outright, I'm buying this field just for the rights of the produce. But in the case of Yovel, where he's saying I'm buying the field, um, then you might you might think that Eshakish would agree with Rabbi Yochanan that in that case he's acquiring the field, even if it's for 25 years or however long it is. You might think that that's really called acquiring the land itself, and you can say mikrabi kurim. So that's why we need this case here um, to teach us that Resh Lakish uh, thinks that even in the Yovel case, it's not he's not actually acquiring the land. And if I had only this machloket here regarding Yovel, I would say that Rabbi Yochanan thinks that only in the case of Yovel, that's where like, I'm, I'm basically acquiring the land. I mean, the deed says, I'm buying your land. Um, happens to be, it's going to go back, but I would say Rabbi Yochanan only says, I can say, when I'm actually buying the land in the middle of Yovel. But if it says in the sale, I'm only acquiring your produce and says not the land, then I might think that Rabbi Yochanan would agree with the Shakish that then I can't say that thank you Hashem for the land. And that's why I need that machloket above as well. So to teach me that Rabbi Yochan and Shakish disagree in both cases. Good. Now, Tashema. Hakone ilan vekarkao mevi vekore. We're going to have an attempted proof supporting Rabbi Yochanan from this Mishnah in Masechet Bikurim. It says someone who buys a tree along with the land, you say, you say Mikra Bikurim. We are assuming that this Mishnah is uh, talking about a case when the Yovel is in practice. And even though I bought the land in the middle of the Yovel, and the land is going to go back to its original owner, yet you say Mikra Bikurim, that's what Rabbi Yochanan says. Reshakish, how are you going to explain it? And the answer is, Reshakish could say this Mishnah is talking about a time period when the Yovel is not in practice. After the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, the Yovel was not in practice anymore uh, when the Jews were no longer on their land. Most of the Jews were no longer on their land. And so that's when, in fact, the Mishnah is compiled in 200 uh, significantly after uh, the Bet HaMikdash is destroyed and the Jews were no longer in the majority on the land. And so Reshaki says, talking about when Yovel is not and does not apply like nowadays, and so a sale is a final sale. And so if um, I sell you a tree and its land, then of course you should say, Mikra Bikurim, you're going to keep it permanently. Good. Tashima. Another Mishnah in Masechet Bikurim says, If I buy two trees in your field, then I bring, mikra, I, I bring the Bikurim, but I cannot recite. Because two trees, that means I'm only acquiring the produce of the trees and not the land itself. But that means three trees. That means I'm acquiring three is already you call it a grove. I'm acquiring all three, and that assumes with the land. And you bring and and you do it. So in that case, you would say um, say mikrabi kurim. This proves Rabbi Yochanan, assuming that's a time of Yovel, and even though the land will go and the trees will go back to you, nevertheless, um, at, while I own it, um, uh, I and enjoy it, I say mikrabi kurim. Proof for Rabbi Yochanan. How is what's Shakish going to answer? He can give the same answer. No, this Mishnah is assuming a time when uh, Yovel is not in practice and it's not going to revert to its owner. So a sale 
is a final sale. Good. Vehashtad amadav chista, machloket beyover sheni, aval beyover dishon, divre hakol, mevi vekore, da kati la samach da ada taihu, la kashia ha beyover dishon, ha beyover sheni. Now we're going to offer a different answer to these two challenges that Eshakish could give, and this answer is based on a new distinction that we heard from Rav Chista. He was a Rosh Yeshiva in Yeshivat Sura. Um, apparently, what we learned before was from a different Yeshiva, so they gave her the interpretation. Rosh could say, this is when, this is after Yovel, is no longer in practice. But Rav Chista, he said that this machloket between Rabbi Yochan and Zakish is only in the second cycle of Yovel. Assuming that Yovel started at the time of uh, Yoshua Binun, when he came into the land, so they, they, when they first acquired the land, then they started counting one, two, three, until 50. Now, anything that was sold during that first 50 years, people didn't know what was going to happen at the end of 50 years, even though they had the Torah, and the Torah says that it's going to go back to the ancestral home, but people didn't, it never happened yet, and so people weren't quite used to the idea. So therefore, during that first cycle, everyone would agree that you can bring, you can say, because during that first cycle, if I sold you some land, you would assume, we would both assume that this is a permanent sale. We weren't, they weren't used to the idea that it's going to go back, right? Because um, they were not relying on it coming back. And so they thought of it as a final sale. And therefore, if I acquired your land, I would say, oh yeah, now it's my land. I, I'm thinking that's going to be forever um, during that cycle. Um, now, during the next cycle, after one, after it happens once, right? Yoshua says, oh, everybody, Yovel, all land is going back. Oh, now we realize how this works. So the sec, if someone sells from that 50-year mark, uh, forevermore until while Yovel is still in practice, then they would, they would know that the sale is temporary. It's really only a sale of produce. And, um, and so now, and that's where the machloket is when Yovel is in practice. It's kind of the same answer, except the one before was after Yovel is no longer, Reshakish answered after the Yovel is no longer in practice. But now that we know this distinction, we could give a different answer for Reshakish. It's before the Yovel was, uh, was accustomed to. And so, um, uh, this would be in Yovel Rishon. Those two Mishnayot would be in the first Yovel when they thought sales were final. And that's why they said Mikra Bikurim. Whereas the Machloket is in Yovel Sheni, that's when you would not bring, you would not say Mikra Bikurim. Okay, good. So now we've uh, been able to solve that problem. Uh, a tangent, by the way, this is interesting because Rav Chista is a third generation Amora, and uh, and someone says, oh, now that we heard from Rav Chista, this third generation, we can give a different answer than we gave before, uh, which sounds like the answers that they gave before were uh, early on, um, uh, some sometime before they at least heard what Rav Chista says. Uh, this might be a good example of an early stam. Usually, the anonymous voice of the of the Talmud, we assume, is the later editorial verse after the Amoraim. Uh, but here, it looks like it's an early stam because um, they gave a couple of answers in some yeshiva. Um, and uh, maybe not the yeshiva of Sura. And then they heard, oh, Rav Chista said that, and it sounds like, you know, maybe a generation after uh, Rav Chista said that, or some, or even sooner after, they said, oh, we heard that Rav Chista said that, now we can give a different answer than what we said before. 
Um, so I think this is a good candidate for an early stam. All right, now that we know that we have Rabbi Yochanan Shakish having two different opinions, can we try to line it up, not line it up with the following two Tanaim in this Baraita? Before we get into this, we're going to have to uh, see a little intro, um, which is the basic Peshat laws um, that are presented in Sefer Vayikra at the end, the last chapter, um, regarding if someone um, sanctifies, makes Hekdesh his land. What are the laws? So it's a little bit complicated, not too complicated, but we need to know this in order to understand the next uh, next Talmud. It says, if someone takes uh, his ancestral, his own ancestral land and makes it Yagdish, and he makes it Yagdish Lashem, so then you have to calculate the uh, amount of how many uh, uh, um, uh, how, how many how many uh, seasons of produce it will produce, and that will be the amount. And if it's from the Yovel, then you you calculate that amount. It's fifty uh, shekel uh, to a chomet of barley seed. Okay. Now, if it's uh, after the Yovel. And then you have to figure out how many years until the next Yovel. The idea is that when some, if I own have ancestral land and I donate, I, de- I dedicate it to the Bet Hamikdash. Well, I'm not, I'm not dedicating the land itself, but rather the amount of uh, produce it will produce from now till Yovel, and then I, I will get it back. So if I do that, I'm going to have to calculate and, and donate that amount. Now, when I uh, uh, consecrate it, it's going to belong to the Bet Mikdash. If I want it back, I have to redeem it. When I redeem it, I have to calculate all that produce and add 20%. So that way, it's a way of um, giving a donation. I can give a donation of any amount. And so I'm donating my field. It means I am now the field is Hekdesh, and I can redeem it by paying that amount uh, of produces plus 20%. Now, what if I don't redeem it? I don't pay. I just say this is consecrated, and the 50th year comes, and I never redeemed it. If the, if the temple treasurer, uh, the Kohen, takes the, says, oh, this is sanctified, and they decide to sell it. The Bet HaMikdash, they're busy with a lot of things. They may not want to go and actually work this land, so they may say, oh, you, thank you for consecrating the land. We are going to donate it, we are going to sell it, rather, to some other farmer. He'll farm it, right? And then we'll take that money of that sale. So once they do that, then the ants, if, if it was my field originally, I don't get it back, right? I have to make sure to redeem it before the Yovel comes, if I consecrate it and the Kohen sells it, then and Yovel comes, then the Kohen, the Bet Mikdash, is considered the new ancestral owner, and they don't get it back. Okay, very important halacha. It will go to the Kohanim. Now, here's that's case one. Case two. Let's say I buy a field from someone else. It's not my field. I bought it in the middle of Yovel. And while it's mine, I make it Ekdesh. Now, this Pasuk is the one we're going to analyze the most. It says, if there's a field that I bought, that's not my ancestral field. You see, there's a doubling. If I bought it, then obviously it's not my ancestral field. Why do you have to say this twice? 
That's what the Tanaim and the following Baraita are going to address. To address. In that case, when I uh, consecrated a field that I bought, then I would have to pay the amount of uh, the assessment until the jubilee year, the number of um, the amount of produce that it will produce. When the ovel comes, it goes back to the ancestral owner, um, uh, and um, so that it, because I bought it, I don't have a right to consecrate it permanently to the Beta Mikdash. If it was the first case was the ancestral owner, he gives it and he doesn't redeem it, then now it belongs to the Kohanim forever. But if I just bought it, I don't even have a right to it myself after once the Yovel comes. And so therefore, uh, even if nobody redeems it, it's going to go back to um, the ancestral owner. And I mean, I have to, I have to pay because I donated that amount. So I have to pay that amount, but the land goes back. Um, okay. That is the basic law of the Torah. Now let's go back and uh, see how this, uh, how the Tanaim interpret this. Uh, now Tanaim are going to apply that Pasuk, that doubled Pasuk to the following case. You have a son who buys a field from his father. The father is the ancestral owner. While the father is alive, the son decides to buy it. And he makes it Hekdesh while it's his. But then, before Yovel comes, the father dies, and now the son inherits. So how are we going to treat this? The son, on the one hand, bought it, but then he also inherited it. So do we treat him like a buyer? In which case, he, the, uh, the land does, uh, and let's say he doesn't redeem it. Um, if he's a buyer and he doesn't redeem it, then the land goes to the ancestral owner, which happens to be himself now, so he gets it back. But if we treat him like an inheritor, then he is the ancestral owner, and he had or he had now consecrated it, and therefore it, it stays in the hands of the Kohanim. That's the machloket about this case. So the first opinion of Rabbi Yudan Rabbi Shimon uh, says, how do you know that it, we treat it like a sedeh even though when at the time that I sanctified it, I was just a purchaser. Once the Yovel comes, I'm the ancestral owner. So then it stays with the Kohanim because now I'm an ancestral owner. How do I know that? From this pasuk, if you apply this law, um, uh, where the, the law that it goes back to the ancestral owner, um, you apply if I, if the one who, who sanctified it is a buyer and not the ancestral owner. That doubled ver- words means, um, so this applies only to a, f- a field that cannot even potentially be inherited and excludes a field that can potentially be inherited. So even though I, as the son, uh, inherit, uh, um, consecrated it while I was a buyer, even so, I was also a potential inheritor. And so therefore, it's treated as if it's an inheritance. And therefore, afterwards, when I do inherit it, um, uh, before the Yovel comes, so I'm treat- it is treated as an ancestral land, and uh, therefore it goes to the Kohen, because they didn't redeem it before the Yovel came. That's the opinion of Rabbi Uda and Rabbi Shimon. We're going to see how this is all relevant in a minute. First, we have to understand the Braita itself, then we'll see the application to Rabbi Yochanan and Shakish. 
That's all one opinion. Rabbi Meir Omer. Minayin lalokach sadeh me'aviv. Umet aviv. V'achar kachik tisha. Minayin sheteh lefanav kisadeh achuzah. Rabbi Meir is going to switch around the order of the actions. He says that it's talking about a son who buys the field from his father. Then the father dies. And after the father dies, then the son uh, sanctifies it. So the son sanctifies it after he already inherits. So in that case, it's clear he's sanctifying a, a land that he is the ancestral owner of. So in that case, how do you know that we treat him like the ancestral owner? In this case, it's actually kind of obvious that you would, because he is the ancestral owner. So here they're learning the pasuk in a more straightforward manner. They're not reading so much in. And this law that it would go back to the 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 if the buyer uh, if if a buyer uh, donated it would go back to the ancestral owner at the Yovel and not remain to the not given be given to the Kohen that only applies to land that is not inherited and in this case it was inherited and um, and uh, is ancestral is the ancestral property of the son. Um, and so that's uh, the opinion of the Bimeir. So the Bimeir says it would go to the Kohen only if you do it in this order. But if it was done in the other or other order, the one up here, and it was bought and then sanctified and only then inherited, then he would say it's treated like he's treated like a buyer. And even though he didn't redeem it, the son would get it back because he, when he donated it, he was a buyer. That would be the opinion of Rabbi Meir. Good. Now, Rabbi Rabbi Shimon, they say that this, in this case of Rabbi Meir, that's so obvious. You don't even need a pasuk for that because the father died, the son inherited, and only then he donated it. So the son is donating it as the ancestral owner. So you don't need a pasuk. Now, um, what's the essence of their machloket? My love, behakami palge. Rabbi Meir Savar, Kinyan perot, ki Kinyan haguf dame. Rabbi Meir must think that acquiring produce is like acquiring land, and like the opinion of Rabbi Yohanan. And therefore, when the son first uh, bought the land while the father was alive, so he, when he bought the produce, he bought the rights to the produce, he bought, that's like buying the land itself. And since he, uh, he, it's like he owned the land already itself, when the father dies, he doesn't inherit anything because he already owned it. He already bought it from the father, so he didn't inherit anything. Therefore, he's still a buyer, according to the Bimeir. Therefore, I need a pasuk in this case, right? We said, why do we even need, need the double language? Isn't this obvious? So Bimeir says, it's not, uh, not obvious because he's following Rabbi Yochanan, who says that when the son buys it, it's like he owns it already, and therefore when the father dies, he's actually not inheriting it, so he's not considered an, an inheritor, he's really considered a buyer. Therefore, even though he bought it, then inherited it, then sanctified it, um, I'm, without the pasuk, I would still think he's a buyer because the inheritance didn't apply to anything. Um, so I think he should be considered a buyer, and therefore the doubling of the pasuk teaches me that even though he didn't inherit any, anything because perot is like land, nevertheless we treat him like uh, an ancestral owner who inherited it. Okay, 
That would explain the Bimeir, why he needs the Pasuk. And Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon Savre, they don't need the Pasuk for that. They need it for the other case where it's wished. Kenyan perot lav kenyan They think that acquiring something just for the produce, any kind of temporary um, uh, acquisition that would go back to the, uh, to the owner, um, uh, is uh, not like taking the land, like buying the land, and therefore when the son buys it, he doesn't yet own the land. And therefore when the father dies, only then does the son actually take possession of the land. And for that reason, in the case where the father died, when he bought it, then the father dies, then he sanctified it, then you don't need a pasuk for that because that's the same as uh, as any regular case of inheritance um, because now he is inheriting something more than from the when he bought it. And uh, there, obviously, he is the ancestor, ancestral owner, and he donated it. So now it's going to be treated like that, and and keep, and going to stay with it's going to stay with the kohen. You don't need a pasuk for that. Therefore, the doubling of the pasuk must be for the case that they brought when he bought it, then sanctified it, and only then inherited it. And and to teach that in that case, um, he uh, still he's in, he's considered like uh, someone who inherits, and it goes back to the uh, and the, and it stays with the kohanim. Okay, and so this is assuming uh, and the Bishimon is assuming that acquisition of produce is not like acquisition of the land, and that was the opinion of Resh Lakish. So you see, these two Amoraim match up with these two Tanaim which we never actually like because we don't want to box in and limit any Amora to be, have to be like only one Tana. We'd rather that the Amorim can be like any Tana. And so we answer, In fact, you can explain it all. Even the Biyudah and Shimon say that in general, Acquiring land, acquiring produce is like acquiring the land itself. But here they saw a difficulty in the pasuk, and they said we need to explain it. The pasuk, even with the doubling, um, could have said um, if it's a, a field that he acquired that was not ancestral. Why do you have to oh, now go repeat? You have to repeat Sadeh and Sadeh again. So the that extra, it's actually triple uh, the, uh, uh, thing, there's three things that we can learn from here because there's so many extra words. So from that extra, extra, we learn uh, We are going to exclude any field that even has the potential to be an ancestral field. In this reading, all the Tanaim agree with Rabbi Yochanan that acquiring produce is like acquiring the land itself. And therefore, I need one of the doublings to teach me that in the case where first the son bought it and then he inherited it, 
in which case he is really the inheritance is not doing anything because he already owned the land and then sanctified it even though it sounds like he should be treated as a buyer even nevertheless one of the doublings teaches me that he's in, he's treated as an inheritor that's one of the doublings the other doubling teaches me further the other case that they said which is um, if one bought it first and then sanctified it and only then inherited it inherited it in which case uh, for sure it seems like he should be treated like a buyer because he sanctified it after he bought it nevertheless even the potential to be an inheritor makes him like an inheritor and therefore is treated as an, inher- an ancestral la- uh, piece of land and it goes to the Kohanim so they learned two things from this Pasuk Rezbimeir only learned one thing but in fact they can all agree uh, like Rabbi Yochanan alright that will be a strong um, argument for Rabbi Yochanan and now we're going to see the final conclusions of various Amoraim uh, supporting either Rabbi Yochanan or then Resh Lakish. Amar Rav Yosef, Ilav Damar Rabbi Yochanan Kinyan Perot Ki Kinyan Naguf Tameh Lo Masai Adav Ragla Bebet Hamidrash. He's like thank uh, heavens for Rabbi Yochanan. If not that Rabbi Yochanan said that by acquiring produce is like acquiring the land itself, we would not be able to find his uh, his hands and his feet in the Bet Hamidrash. In other words. We'd have big problems. Actually, Rabbi Yochanan himself would have problems, and he would not be able to uh, to uh, defend himself in the Beit Midrash because a different statement that Rabbi Yochanan says: If you have brothers who inherit something inherit from their father and then they decide to split it when they split it they're considered purchasers and therefore when the ovel comes the two brothers have to return to each other the uh, this half the land and that half the land that they split they have to return the halves to each other and split it again um, now, how would, uh, how, is, how would, what would be the problem? If he didn't say that Kinyan Hagu, that the acquiring produce is like, is like acquiring land, if he thought that it's uh, not like acquiring the land, that means that no one, hardly anyone would ever be able to say, Anytime you have a father with two or more sons, we cons- we would consider those two sons to be uh, buyers of the produce only because they're like buyers and the land is going to go back to each other. So the land, they don't own the land. The other one owns the the other one owns the land, um, but um, they themselves don't know. They own the land. The, the inheritance owns the land, so it's going to go back to the that kind of shared inheritance. But the brothers themselves only buy temporarily the produce until the ovale. As such, if you said that produce is not like buying the land, then they would not be able to say mikrabi kurim. Who would be able to say mikrabi kurim? Only Yoshua Binun could say it because he inherited the land. If someone from that time um, had one son and that son had only one son forever, so then one son who inherits from his father, then he's not considered a buyer because he inherited the entire land. And so if you find a family that can trace their lineage to have one son only, all the way back to the time of Yoshua Binun, that person would be able to say, to say Mikra Bikurim, but that's basically impossible. And so therefore, anyone else who anywhere along the line had two sons, those two sons would be buyers, 
and uh, therefore uh, forevermore um, they would not we could not say that they are it's their ancestral land um, uh, but rather they're just buyers when they die then their sons are, are buying bought land not ancestral land and so therefore it's a good thing to be uh, said that acquiring land acquiring produce is like acquiring that land and therefore two brothers who split it even though they're only buying produce temporarily and the land belongs to the the shared estate Nevertheless, it's as if they bought the land and they can still say Mikra Bikurim. Okay, so anyway, Rabbi Yochanan is consistent and therefore he can defend, defend himself in the Bet Midrash. But now we're going to bring proofs for Resh Lakish. This is Rabbi says, I have a Pasuk and a Braita that both support Resh Lakish. Pasuk says, um, when you sell uh, land, then you don't don't uh, cheat the buyer and by by selling him the whole price of the land, but rather you have to calculate the number of crops from now until the avail. So what do you see from that? That selling land is really only selling crops, only selling produce. It's really not selling the land at all. That's what Eshaki said. Matnita de Tanya, Bechor Notel Pishanaim Basade, Hachozedet Laviv by Yovel. Here's a background. Uh, a Bechor, he gets a double portion only of what the father owned at the time of his death. If the father was owed money, but it was not paid, and the father dies, the, uh, the uh, oldest son does not and get a double of that amount. Later on, when the person pays, then they will all split that uh, evenly. However, a Bechor does get double, a, uh, the, um, double the amount from a field that will go back to the father at the time of Yovel, even though at the time that he died, it was before Yovel. And so at that time, this other guy, the buyer, has it. Nevertheless, um, when the land goes back to, uh, when the Yovel comes and the land reverts back to the ancestral owner, the son gets double. What you see from there is that we treat it as if the father owned it at the time of his death. So that the buyer is considered only a buyer of the produce, but the father still owns the land. And that is another proof for Resh Lakish. Amar Abayeh, Naktinan Baal Benichse Ishto, Sarich Harsha'a. Yet another statement that um, follows Resh Lakish. Um, if a husband wants to, um, needs authorization uh, with regard to his wife's property, let's say he has to go to court to argue something on behalf of the property that his wife brought in. That the wife brings in and she keeps ownership but the husband can use the produce um, now in general anytime you're going to go to court only the litigant only the owner of the field can go to court if someone else is going to court they need written authorization i am representing that person so the husband here is not considered the owner of the land he has to get a writ or writ of authorization from the wife what do you see from here that even though he's he's uh in he's um uh, enjoying the produce during the marriage, he's not considered the owner. The the wife is still the owner of the land, like Resh Lakish. One last caveat to this law of Abaye: Agufa. 
We only say that the husband has to get a writ of authorization from his wife when he is not arguing concerning the produce. Let's say he's arguing, has an argument concerning the land. Some guy came and is encroaching on the land and say, no, this land belongs to uh, us, to my wife. Then he has to have, get a writ of authorization. But if the lawsuit has to do with the produce, uh, some guy is coming and, and, and taking the produce, then he doesn't have to get a writ of authorization because uh, since the law is about produce and he is the litigant regarding the produce so therefore he can represent himself and does not have to get authorization from his wife that completes the fourth pedic and now we begin the fifth pedic which continues on the same thing uh, same theme of enactments that the rabbis made generally there were three levels of land. Edit is the best quality land. Benonit is medium quality. Ziburit is the lowest quality of land. Um, so the, we learn first that if a perpetrator causes damage to someone else, the victim, the perpetrator has to pay the victim back with the, using the best of his land. Now it's going to be the same amount. Let's say he caused $1,000 worth of damage. So then there's equal value. A small amount of good quality land is the same as a bigger amount of low quality land. So it would be the same monetary value. Nevertheless, people generally would prefer a small amount of high quality land that is easier to uh, to work and produces better fruit um, and easier to sell that fruit and so on, rather than a large amount of low quality land. Therefore, if someone is the victim of uh, injury, so they deserve to get the best land and that will prevent um, hopefully the uh, perpetrators uh, will be more careful and not cause damages again. Um, now someone who is uh, has to pay back a loan um, and they don't have cash to pay back so then the the lender would, would collect from medium quality land right this is just in the middle and uh, the husband can pay using lowest quality, quality land and all these have a good tikkun olam in this case it would be to encourage the husband to pay he's more right he's more likely to pay if he can use any type of land and also more likely to marry in the first place if he knows that oh if if it should end in divorce or death then i will have to i could pay with any land so then he's more likely to enter into and guarantee uh, the woman her ketubah Rabbi Meir says, no, for Kituba, that's also Benonit. It's actually kind of like a, a loan, right? He says, I'm gonna, I will owe you this amount, and therefore it should be treated like a chav and also be Benonit. And that also is better for the woman. One cannot pay from land that was sold if there is unsold land. In other words, if I owe you $1,000 and I don't have any cash um, and I have land available, you can't go and say, I want to collect, for, uh, even if you have, even if my land, land is mortgaged to you, um, you can't go and collect from land that I already sold if I have land here. Even if the land that I have here available is the lowest quality land, that that's uh, that's what I give to you. Uh, rather than you, you can insist and say, "I want Benonit land, and I'm going to go collect from someone I sold it to." And this is also a good tikkun olam. We prefer not to have to repossess land from people who bought it because that uh, disrupts the economy. Every time you buy something, you kind of want to know that if I bought it, then I'm going to keep it. Um, uh, that's why we check the deeds uh, now before you buy anything.
Um, so therefore, um, you have to take what's available first. If orphans have to pay something, their father owed money and now the orphans have to pay, they pay from the lowest quality land. We always want to protect as much as possible the assets of orphans. And uh, this is a little bit of a complicated case. If I steal land from you and I sell it to another guy, we'll call him the buyer. Now, eventually, um, you're going to go and, and get your land back. Um, and so you go and repossess your land from the buyer. However, now the buyer is out many things. Number one, the purchase price. Number two, he also in the meantime, let's see, he had it for a few months um, until you came and got it back. So he might have uh, put money into the land, right? And bought, uh, bought materials and improved the land and produced fruit from it. And so now when you go and take it back from the, uh, from the buyer, the buyer is out all of that. Now the buyer can come to me because I'm the one that stole it in the first place. So regarding the actual, the value of the purchase price of the land, for that, if I have no money, he can go and collect from land that I sold to someone else. He can say, sorry, I get, uh, I get to take that land. Um, and then I would have to pay that other guy back. Um, so that he can take from uh, sold land. However, the increase that he, the, the, the money that he put in, so that's shevach uh, karkaot, the benefit that enhanced value of the land and the produce that grew while he, while he owned it um, and, and was working it, for that he can only collect um, from, uh, from uh, available property, the property that I have, he cannot go and take from Nechasim Meshubadim. That's the full uh, uh, sentence. And Motsi'in for these things, Mi Nechasim Meshubadim. And also, if a husband uh, dies, the law is that his estate. Um, uh, uh, takes care of his wife and his children and gives them uh, mazon. And for that also, if the estate is uh, depleted, um, then the wife and the daughters do not have the right to go and take from land that was, or that was from, from lean property uh, that was sold. They cannot repossess uh, land for that reason. And all these things are for the betterment of the world. And finally, in the Mishnah HaOlam, if I find a lost item and I come and return it, I find a wallet and I return it to the owner. Uh, the owner cannot come and say, I want you to swear that you didn't take anything out of this wallet. I had $1,000 in the wallet. Now there's only 500. I want you to swear that you didn't take the 500. I'm the finder. I don't have to swear, right? Because if you're going to make me swear, I'm going to like, oh, people don't want to swear. I won't, I won't uh, return it in the first place. And therefore, I return it and, and the finders who go and return something do not have to swear that they didn't take anything of it. All right, we're going to go now and ask about the first case. If someone injures someone else, then the perpetrator has to pay the best land. That's not tikkun haolam. That's an explicit pasuk. It says the best of his field or the best of his vineyard, the he has to pay. Why, why are you including this in this list of rabbinic enactments? Uh, this uh, Mishnah 
is actually the opinion of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael says the Torah law, when we say the best of the land, we follow the victim. Right? Let's say the perpetrator has better land, is richer than the victim, and uh, so now the victim incurred $1,000 worth, uh, worth of injury. Of damage, and so uh, the um, let's say I'm the perpetrator. I come to pay. I'm going to pay you the best land, and we uh, evaluate the best land according to the best land of the victim. Right? You get whatever you have as as your best land. That's what I have to pay. That's the letter of the law, Mideoraita. The Tikkun Olam comes and says, you know what? I actually have, we're going to assess from the best land of the uh, of the perpetrator, right? And if I have my land, my level of best land is is more, then I have to pay that amount, and that is good because then that will be more of a deterrent uh, for me not to damage in the future. I'm going to have to give my best land. Okay, Mayur Rabbi Ishmael. Now let's get the source. Where does Rabbi Ishmael say this? Tanya. Metav Sadehu Metav Karmo Yishalem. Metav Sadehu Shel Nizak Metav Karmo Shel Nizak Dibre Rabbi Ishmael. So when the Pasuk says the best of his land he shall pay, but that pronoun Sadehu, who is it referring to? Rabbi Ishmael says it's the best land of the victim, or the best vineyard of the victim. Rabbi Ishmael Omer Loba Katub Ela Ligbot Nizakin Min Ha'idit Kalva Homer La Hekadesh. Says, no, the Pasuk is coming and saying we are going to compensate to the injured party from the best land of the person who's paying of the perpetrator. There's a Kavachomer from there to Hekdesh. If I cause damage to something that belongs to the temple, then I would certainly have to pay back from the best of my land. I'll discuss this line a little bit more on the next daf. Okay, so this is the source of Rabbi Ishmael and how he argues with Rabbi Akiva. But now we're going to ask about the logic of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael, Achal Shemena, Meshalem Shemena. Achal Kechusha, Meshalem Shemena. According to Rabbi Ishmael, I understand that, let's say my ox came and ate one square yard of your best fat land with fat vegetables on it, then I would have to pay back also with uh, one square yard of uh, fat vegetables. But what logic does it make for Rabbi Ishmael if my ox ate some kichusha from skinny vegetables on bad land that you had, I should have to pay back the best? In other words, if you're going by the... Uh, so the uh, value of the victim, then it should be defined by what the victim lost. And we're assuming now we're talking about square yard for square yard, right? The same amount of space, not not the value. So then it doesn't make any sense that if I destroy something that's of low value, that I should pay for the best value of your own land. It uh, should always be the same. So David Barabin says that Bishma here is talking about a case only where the ox went and ate some patch of vegetables, but we don't know which one it is. And we're not sure if it's the skinny one or the fat one. And therefore, we say, listen, it might have been the fat one, so I, the perpetrator, have to pay from the best quality of your uh, vegetable, uh, of your land, um, just in case my ox destroyed that one square yard of your um, best of the vegetables. So uh, only in that case would I have to pay the best. If I know that if we, if we know and we can prove that it was from the uh, worst part of your uh, vegetable patch, then I would have to pay only the amount of your worst uh, part. 
Okay, so that's his answer. Ravan says that doesn't make sense. If you know that it was from the worst part, you would pay for the from the worst part. So now, if you don't know. I, the perpetrator, should have to pay for uh, a, a higher amount. You're trying to extract money from me without proof, right? If you can prove that it was high-quality land, then I'll pay you for, for the, your high-quality land. But if you can't prove it, then I'm going to uh, pay only for the smallest quality. Uh, that's the only thing that you can prove. And therefore, this is not a good answer. Rather, Ravacha Bar Yaakov says, it doesn't go by the square yard, I'd have to pay one square yard for one square yard, but rather it's the value. Right, we we assess how much how much did it cause damage it was a hundred dollars of, of damage, and so then we see okay, so um, the, it's still going to be a hundred dollars worth of payment, but the question is of whose land when it's of uh, when we are in different levels, um, so that the best land of the victim is equal to the worst land of the perpetrator. So that's the case where the Bishmael says we're going to file we're going to use the best land of the victim. And the Biakiba says it's going to be the best land of the perpetrator. But either way, it'll be that $100 worth. So it's not square yard per square yard like we were saying before, because then that wouldn't make sense if as I'm paying, if I'm giving you back actual square yard and I know it's from something that was of low quality, then I should only have to pay of low quality. Rather, we're going to assess the quality first and assess, well, how much was the damage? Was it $100, $200? And then the only question is when the payment comes, Will it be from the best, my best land or from your best land? Baruch Adonai Leodam, Amen, Amen.